Good morning. Um, thank you again to Eric and Sandy, who uh, so graciously and willingly joined us, and um, we're here to help us worship God together, and just what a blessing it is to have, uh, I think, uh, I guess Eric 1.0 here with us, um, leading us in music this morning. My name is Zach, and I'm preaching one sermon this morning. Ben is going to be starting us in a new series uh, next Sunday, going through the book of Romans and taking uh, longer than usual to get through what is a big and dense and important uh, book in the Bible. Um, This morning, though, we're going to talk about Samson, and so I'm going to set the scene a little bit. Uh, There's a stillness in the air. There's a stillness in the air. It's not peaceful. But unsettling. You know what I'm talking about. It's a quiet that indicates that something isn't quite right. In fact, something has gone horribly wrong. A cloud of dust surrounds you like a fog. It's breaking up the sunlight and covering everything in its shadow under a blanket of dirt and grime. Before you is a jumbled pile of plaster and wood and stone and brick, the remains of a house of worship that stood just moments ago with hundreds, if not thousands, of observant men and women celebrating inside, now crushed beneath the debris. Among those killed in the building's collapse are the area's most prominent and powerful leaders, and not incidentally, the region's most notorious criminal. You know his name. You may even know his story, and judging by the context, you've probably guessed it already. For 20 years, a judge in Israel, Samson, lay dead beneath the rubble with his enemies. This is where we find ourselves at the end of Samson's story in chapter 16 of the book of Judges. The strongest man on earth, beaten, bound, and blinded, paraded in front of his mocking foes before breaking down a Philistine temple in a desperate, last-ditch, suicidal act of vengeance. So how is it that Samson ended up here, dead beneath the ruins? Well, that's what I intend to find out with you all this morning. And so we're going to turn in your Bibles to Judges 13. If you do not have a Bible, there should be a Bible in one of the seats in front of you. If you would like to take that home with you. If you do not have a Bible, take that home with you as a gift from us. It's so important to have a Bible. As you're turning there, or I guess before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's blessing this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blessing it is, the opportunity that we have as a people um, called out from lots of different places, from lots of different lives, Meeting here on this Sunday morning around your word that teaches us about you and about your son um, and the gospel and the good news of salvation and redemption and restoration that we have uh, and that we find there. Lord, I I ask that you would, uh, as Joshua mentioned, um, we know that you are always with us. But God, I pray that those who are not here this morning, whether it's on the they're on the road, they're already with family, they're at the race. wherever the people we love find themselves, uh, that they would know that you love them, that you care for them, uh, God, and that you would nourish them this morning spiritually, uh, whether it's 
just a song or two on the radio. It's a sermon that they hear as they're going about, or, or maybe it's a church that they're worshiping at with friends or family in another town. Oh, Lord, I just pray that we never neglect the importance of coming together and worshiping you and, and setting aside time and devoting it to uh, worship you, to honor you, to learn more about you, and to encourage one another. That, that we're not here as a bunch of individuals siloed off from one another, but we're here and we bear another's burdens and we laugh with each other and we cry with each other and we help one another. Um, and just what a gift that is. Uh, Father, I ask that you would bless uh, your word this morning. Um, and the work that I've done in preparing to preach this sermon, that it would affect my own heart and would go out and affect the hearts of the people here. And that we would be encouraged, called to action, stirred up in our love for you. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. So let's go ahead and look at Judges 13, starting in verse 1. We're going to get a bit of the context. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. It's important to understand the context of Judges. Joshua alluded to this earlier. Basically, everyone stunk. Everybody. Uh, That's a theme and a recurring statement throughout the book of Judges. Not that everyone stunk. That would be funny. But that everyone did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Compare this passage to uh, something similar In Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 2, it says, If there is found among you, within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, or the sun, or the moon, or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden, and has told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel... Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. Doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord was not something to be taken lightly. Yet the whole book of Judges is filled with the corruption of all of Israel doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Time and time again, the Israelites do what is evil. And God hands them over to their enemies as a form of discipline. And they cry out to God for help, and God delivers them. God raises up a judge, someone who brings justice, and the people are saved. God gives them peace in the land. So this is where where we're at. So let's go ahead and read in verse 2. It says, There was a certain man of Zorah, so a city in Israel, of the tribe of the Danites, Dan being one of the sons of Jacob, and thus a founder of one of the tribes of Israel, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson, who we're reading about there in Judges 13, from even before conception, he wasn't even conceived yet, was set apart to be a Nazarite. A Nazarite is not to be confused with Nazareth, where Jesus spent much of his childhood, or Nazarene, which was what Jesus was for having grown up in Nazareth, and and throughout times and places in history has been used to describe Christians. A Nazarite... Again, not Nazareth or Nazarene, is described for us in Numbers 6. 
And, and frankly, we don't know a ton about it except what is there. But the word itself means separated or consecrated. And so essentially, the Nazarite took a vow to be separated for dedicated service to God. And these vows were not typically permanent, which makes Samson's own situation unique. And during the length of this vow, uh, which for Samson, again, was his entire life, you were not permitted to eat or drink anything grape-related. No no grapes, no wine, no raisins, nothing from a grapevine. Additionally, you were not to go near a dead body, not even a member of your own family. It's so severe that if someone were to drop dead next to you, Out of nowhere, it would break your vow. And then lastly, and most famously, as a Nazarite, you were not supposed to cut your hair. All these were visible signs that the Nazarite was set apart. And and what makes Samson's situation unusual, unusual, sorry, if not remarkable, is that he did not choose to be a Nazarite. Typically, these were things chosen by individuals, again, for a certain amount of time. Samson did not choose to be a Nazarite. His parents didn't choose to make him a Nazarite. God himself chose Samson to be separated for himself and his purposes. And that purpose, if you look in verse 5, is to begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And it's not that the Philistines were a particularly bad bunch of people, and so God is punishing them, because any guilt the Philistines had would have been matched by the guilty Israelites, the idolatrous Israelites. But the Israelites were God's chosen people, and God had promised to give them the land of Canaan. And that promise could not be filled as long as there were Philistine cities in the land of Canaan. They needed to be driven out, just like everybody else. And so the Philistines were a problem. And Samson was the start of God's solution. So Samson is born, and then we'll pick up in Judges 14, verse 1. It says, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now there are all kinds of issues That may not jump out at you immediately here. First, Samson goes to the city of Timnah, which was not an Israelite city, but a Philistine one. And this reveals right away to us that Samson has grown awfully comfortable with the Philistines. Comfortable enough to pay them a visit rather than running them off, fighting them, getting them out. He's traveling casually from town to town. And not only that, but Samson wants a wife from among them. And this was typical of the disobedience of Israel at this time. Earlier in the introduction uh, to the book of Judges, we're told that this was a practice and it was bad. It was evil in the eyes of God. In Judges 3, 6, it says, And their daughters, that's Philistine women, they took for themselves as wives. And their own daughters, so the Israelite women, they gave to their sons and they served their gods. Now this isn't a biblical prohibition on marriage across ethnic lines. But it is, at the very least, a biblical warning against marriage across religious ones, a warning that is picked up later in the New Testament. The problem wasn't the language they spoke or the color of their skin or what they looked like. The problem was the false gods that they worshipped and the great temptation those gods would be for the Israelites when introduced in marriage. But that doesn't seem to be a concern for Samson. 
And we shouldn't be surprised. Our storyteller, the person narrating judges for us, has made it clear that Samson is judging things from the wrong perspective. The Philistine woman is right in his eyes, his own eyes. Samson doesn't care what anyone else thinks. And in the midst of this romantic wedding story, as you look further in Judges, you find the amazing story of Samson being charged by a young lion, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and tearing the lion to pieces with his bare hands. And this serves to show us of the violence that Samson is going to be capable of later in his life, the strength that he has, uh, that it is anointed by God, it is provided to him by God. It also serves to show us a little bit of Samson's bad nature. Uh, For whatever reason, he keeps it a secret. He doesn't tell his parents. And then later on, after some time has passed, and he finds honey in this dead, rotting carcass, he offers it to his parents to eat. And you might be grossed out by the thought of that, uh, but it wasn't just that it was gross. It was that It was against their purity laws. And so Samson had dishonored his parents by making them sin, by offering them this honey out of this dead animal uh, and not telling them. And so he, he takes this line, he meets this line, and he eventually goes and he's throwing this big feast for this wedding, for this girl he met in Timnah that he's making his parents get for him. And at the wedding, there are 30 Philistine guests. And he poses them a riddle about the lion, and they wager... 30 linen suits and a change of clothes, which sounds ridiculous, but it must have been worth a lot of money, enough to make these men very angry when they could not figure it out. And so they go to Samson's wife and they say, why have you brought this man here to make us poor, to take all of these things from us? And so she goes to Samson and she starts nagging at him, saying, tell me the answer to this riddle. And he eventually breaks. He tells her, she turns around and tells her or tells the Philistines And Samson is angry. Samson feels cheated. And so he goes and he kills 30 Philistine men in a different city, takes the clothes from them, and brings them back to fulfill his end of the deal. And then like an angry kid on the playground, he picks up his ball and he goes home. He just leaves. He goes home. It says he goes to his father's house and he just waits. And after some time passes, he decides, hey, maybe I should go visit my wife who I left in Timnah. So he goes down there, and wouldn't you know, his wife has been given to another man. So Samson, he takes this in stride, and he's perfectly reasonable about it, and he just goes back home. No, he he does not do that. He gets 300 foxes, ties them together by the tails, puts torches in the knot of those tails, lights them, and then sends them into the Philistine fields, burning everything. Madness, utter madness. Destroys a crop, a year's worth of crops. And naturally, the Philistines are angry. And so they turn around, and they burn Samson's wife and his father-in-law to death. And so Samson has some big words. He's a tough guy, but he runs away. He runs to the land of Judah. And while he's in Judah, unlike so many of the judges before him, Samson does not rally the people around him. He's a lone ranger. He's doing this alone, not because it's better, but because he wasn't a leader All of his motivation is self-interested. He never once does anything for anyone beside himself. And so when he's in Judah, these are his people who should also be fighting against the Philistines. But but instead of getting behind him, rallying around this strong man, this potential hero, the Philistines, or the, the, the the men of Judah, hand Samson over to the Philistines. They would rather go about their way, mind their own business, than follow Samson into battle. 
But then, then in bondage, it, it begins to look like maybe, just maybe, Samson is starting to figure things out. Uh, no surprise, he's filled by the Holy Spirit, and it says the ropes like, melt off of him like wax. He breaks out of his ropes. He finds a donkey, donkey's jawbone, a donkey's jawbone, picks it up and proceeds to kill a thousand Philistine men. And then, as you might expect, Samson's thirsty. So let's look at verse 18, chapter 15, verse 18. It says, And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And, now, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore, the, man, the name of it was called En Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines twenty years. This story intentionally echoes pieces from the Exodus. When the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, they find themselves in the desert and they are understandably thirsty. Fair enough. But here, we find a rare instance of Samson clearly doing the right thing. Unlike the Israelites who cried out to God in the desert, why have you saved us out of Egypt just to bring us into the desert to kill us of thirst? Samson believes in the goodness of God and says, you have saved me from my enemies. Surely you will give me a drink. This is the faith that the Israelites should have had. And it is a demonstration of faith, albeit a shocking one, from Samson. And and furthermore, in this story, there are echoes of Samson being similar to Moses. Moses, the great leader of the Israelites, leading them out of Egypt, arguably the most important Israelite to ever live, aside from Jesus. Um, Moses got water from the Israelites from a rock. And here we have Samson doing the very same thing. So, has Samson turned over a new leaf? Well, if you look at the very next verse, 16.1, no, he's not. Not even close. It says, Samson went to Gaza, a Philistine city, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. So similar to the problem with going to Timnah, it just shows a lack of regard for God's promise that the Philistines were to be cast out. He's very comfortable going in and out and between those cities. And not only that, he's not going there to deliver the Israelites to start a campaign, a military campaign against the Philistines. But he goes and he meets a prostitute. So the Philistines set a trap to get Samson and he finds out and he breaks free and He gives the city of Gaza a pretty serious defeat, but he also looks like a bozo in the process. And then, and then finally, Samson meets his match. In verse 4, it says, After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson lies to her, saying that bowstrings that have not been dried should be used to bind him. And so she binds him. 
She yells, Samson, the Philistines are here. And he gets up and breaks them and is prepared to fight. That clearly didn't work. So she asks again. And Samson keeps playing the game. Two more times, in fact. He lies. She buys it. He breaks free. He lies. She buys it. He breaks free. And then finally, it's Samson whose will breaks. He spills the beans. He tells her that he has never cut his hair and that his hair is connected to his strength. Now, I don't know what Samson thought was going to happen, but it's pretty obvious as we're reading this story what is definitely about to happen. His hair is cut. God leaves him. And when the Philistines are truly there, he no longer has the spirit's strength to fight them off. And so he is captured by the Philistines. Here he is. This is the hero that we found at the beginning laying under the rubble. Here is how he got there. In verse 23, it picks back up. It says, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they call, or they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. Then they made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them. His right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him beneath Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. And he had judged Israel 20 years. So how is it that this strong man found himself dying under the weight of a fallen Philistine temple? I think it's fairly obvious Samson had spent his life running in the wrong direction. He thought he could chase his passions without consequences. And and frankly, for most of his life, he was completely right. He did lots of foolish, if not downright wicked and sinful things. And somehow, some way, God kept giving him victories over his enemies. For crying out loud, he was in bed with a Philistine prostitute one moment, got up the next, Stole the city gates, ran with them for 30 miles, climbed a hill, and gloated. It would be awfully hard for Samson to feel like he had done anything wrong when God was still blessing him and equipping him to overcome the Philistines in spite of his many outrageous sins. Samson mistook God's patience with his sin for a blind eye toward it. Instead of taking God's patience as an opportunity to repent and avoid the destruction at the end of it, Samson just kept pushing the envelope. Samson believed that he could find satisfaction out there. 
He was a member of God's chosen people with the promised inheritance of a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet he spent his time outside the bounds of Israel. Instead of living like he was called out, both as a Nazarite and as an Israelite, he lived to fit in. He wanted what the world could offer him. And at bottom, this betrays a heart that believes God is either stingy or God is incompetent. And it's really hard to argue that Samson might have thought God was incompetent. He believed that God would deliver him from his foes. He praised God for empowering him, strengthening him to have victory in battle. He believed that God could provide water in the desert from a rock. But God's prohibition against marriage outside of Israel, stingy. Samson wanted freedom from God, at least when it was convenient to him. He foolishly believed that he could find lasting satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God because God wasn't giving him enough. God wasn't satisfying his appetites. And so Samson did what was right in his own eyes and found himself blinded, beaten, and bound. His sin caught up to him, and his sin had him lying beneath the rubble instead of standing on top of it. Now, some of you may be familiar with the story of King David and Bathsheba. David sees this woman, he takes her, gets her pregnant, and then has her husband killed by putting him on the front lines of the battlefield. Then, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan, a prophet, comes to David and tells a story about a rich man who stole a poor man's sheep. And by the end of this story, David is outraged. And he is demanding that this man who stole this this poor man's sheep be killed and that the sheep be restored four times over. And as he's raging about this, Nathan looks at David and says, you are the man. You've no doubt this morning thought that Samson was a fool. You've asked yourself, why would he go back to Delilah three more times? And while the story of Samson isn't a parable made up by a prophet to make a point, I have to wonder, are you the man? How often have you been Samson in your own life, chasing your passions out there because you don't think God has enough for you? Like Samson going into the land of the Philistines, you've done things, gone after things, watched things, heard things, dwelled on things that aren't prohibited, but are dangerous, And incredibly unwise, all because you believe they can offer you something you need that God isn't giving to you. How often have you played with the fire of sin, thinking that since you haven't been burned the first time or the second time, or even maybe after the hundredth time, because you haven't been burned, you think God is turning a blind eye to your sin, maybe even endorsing it. How often are we living to fit in with sin, to be comfortable with sin, pursuing those things, instead of living apart for a holy glory. Just like David, who was so angry with this rich man in the story, whatever judgment we may pass on Samson becomes our burden to bear if, in fact, you are the man. And in case you're looking at the life of Samson and not seeing any similarities, let me tell you that the heart behind Samson's sin is the same heart behind yours, and it's the same heart behind mine. It's a heart that believes that God is holding something back from you. 
that there are things out in the world, things God calls sin, that are actually for your good. That God is limiting you by placing restrictions on you. That he's keeping you from the full experience of your humanity by giving you rules. This is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve when they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They bought the devil's lie that God was holding something back from them. That it was to their benefit to disobey God and take and eat because, well, the fruit was very pleasing to the eye. How many of us are doing the same thing? How many of us Christians in this church are pursuing pleasures in places where God is completely absent? How many of us are pursuing things, chasing after Delilah's? Things that are meant to wreck us and destroy us, completely oblivious to the fact because we are so enamored by their beauty. Because they're right in our own eyes. This doesn't have to be an adulterous relationship. It can be an ungodly movie or book or television show. It can be ungodly music. It can be an ungodly friendship. It can be an ungodly pastor preaching an ungodly gospel. It can be greed for material gain. There are sins that we love so much that we don't realize they have the potential to destroy us. They look beautiful because we don't see them how God sees them. And when we see them as beautiful and God calls them sin, we are inclined to trust ourselves over God. And we despise the holy calling we have in order to fit in with the world. We believe there is something out there. That God isn't giving to us. We believe God is stingy. But God is anything but stingy. Even in a story like Samson's, where Samson's life is lost and ruined because of his sin, God never stops being gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. First, Samson was chosen and set apart for God not because he deserved it, But because God is gracious. And in spite of Samson's sins and his selfishness, God still graciously accomplished much for his people through Samson's life. The Philistines, may I remind you, were worshiping their God for giving them Samson. They were praising their God, Dagon, for giving them Samson, giving them this victory over their great enemy. All of the leaders and the officials of the Philistines are gathered to celebrate And they're killed in the building where Samson was being held captive. It's hard to imagine the Philistine cities, who ought to have been driven out of the land, not being severely weakened by such a terrible blow. And so God, in his grace, not because Samson was such a good guy, or even because he was so strong, or because he was some kind of hero, but because of his grace, God began to work deliverance from the Philistines for the Israelites. And God has been incredibly gracious to us. He saves us, not because of anything we've done or anything we do, but because of his great love and mercy, which he has demonstrated for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived and died and rose again for the sins of the world. And if we truly believe that, Why do we doubt that God will give us all that we need to live and more? God loves you. He loves you enough to send his only son to save you. 
God will not lead you out of bondage to sin and into the wilderness to die. He will not let you go thirsty. He will provide for your needs. But that doesn't mean everything in life will be easy. Jesus always fixed his eyes on his father's plans. And look where that left him. Dying on a cross. He suffered. And this world is wicked. It may persecute you for following God's call. But the suffering here, the pain here, is worth nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. Sin will not meet your needs. It won't. God is patient with our sins. Patient beyond measure. And he generously gives us time to mess up and mess up and mess up again in the hopes that we will turn from our sin and put our hope in him. That in Christ, we will see a God who meets all of our needs with open hands. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your love toward us. Thank you um, that even in the midst of the darkness of a book like Judges, we see your gracious work. We see your hand. Uh, even in someone who is uh, as sinful as Samson, God, we, don't, we see that you don't abandon him. That we're never too far away to be used by you, to be saved by you, to call out for you for help, even with our dying breath. But God, I pray that we as Christians, um, and for those of us who are not yet Christians, that we don't wait until our dying breath, and that we don't think that holiness, that obedience, that following you is uh, a cage, that they're chains to be slogged through life, but that it's, it's freedom, it's, it is life, that you give us commands, and you give us rules, and you give us laws as a part of your gracious gift, that we are not saved by them, but they, they help us and they encourage us and they, and they show us how to avoid finding ourselves at the bottom of a, of a pile, even if all the while we are still fulfilling your plans. Um, God, I ask that these words that I have spoken this morning, that I've labored over this past week, uh, would go out and just as you promised, not return void. Um, that perhaps even in spite of myself and in spite of my best intentions, you would still work and be good to us, good to me, good to this congregation, good to our guests here this morning, um, and that by your Spirit you would do a mighty work in us uh, to show us our sin, to see or show us how we might be the man, how we might be chasing after things that are right in our own eyes uh, but are wicked to you, and that you would help us to break free of those loves and to find our satisfaction and our fulfillment in what you've provided. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.